Hey everyone, my name is Matt Boyd and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church. Sojourn is a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. We hope that this sermon both inspires you and challenges you to live a life of intentionality where you seek to make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our church family, you can go online and check out our website at sojournpdx.org. Enjoy this sermon. Well, good evening. If you haven't met me, I think most of you have. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here at Sojourn. And as you see, we're starting a new series in the book of Ephesians tonight. And so hopefully, if you stick with us, it's going to take probably 12 to 15 weeks. So I know that's a long time, but as you saw, um, he unpacks a lot in that video. Now he does a way better job. And so you can go back and watch that over and over again, and you can double check, like, did he actually teach and preach that accurately? Uh, in some ways, I can just say, hey, we're done. Let's move to the next book. But if you haven't heard the Bible Project, definitely look them up, watch their videos. They've got all kinds of cool resources. And uh, Tim Mackey, whose voice you hear, is a very smart individual. So we live in a day and age that is very divided. Just think about our country. Uh, think about, turn on the news tonight, go home and turn on CNN or Fox News or NBC or just get on social media. We live in a very divided time politically. We see it uh, play out in extremes, right? Like, do we build a wall? Do we not build a wall? There's all kinds of things happening in our nation right now. We're also divided racially, right? And if you hear that and you think, I don't know that we're actually divided racially, my feedback to that is that you probably are part of the problem if you don't think that we're actually divided racially. Like just, just look around our nation. Let's look what's happening. And it's not saying that you as an individual, but as a whole, when we see all these things are happening around us, we're divided socioeconomically, right? I look at a city like ours, and I feel like it's just widening that gap on what is affordable housing and what's not affordable housing, right? And you look at the, the houses just in this neighborhood, which I'm still a renter because I can't afford to buy a house. And you look around, and you're like, how in the world can people afford those? And apparently people can because they continue to move in and they're continuing to buy these houses when they go on the market for half a million dollars or more. And unfortunately, these divisions have also crept into the church. And so if depending on how familiar you are with church and if you've been in church your whole life or not, there's a lot of divisions now, I feel like, in, in the church world as well. And some of those have played in with our over larger culture and what we see happening. And so as we see this happening and we, we look back at the mission that Jesus gave us just a couple of weeks ago, for those of you who were here, we looked at the mission that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28. And you think that that doesn't seem like the place where he described that it doesn't seem like the church should be divided. It seems like we should all be on a common mission together and going after really the same purpose. And the church should be the one place where you are not known for our divisions, but we should know, be known for our unity. This should be the one, the one area that you can show up and say, like, man, we are all on the same page. Like we may have a different opinion. We may have even voted for different politicians, but we are unified under one common mission that has been given to us by Jesus himself. So tonight we're going to start this series in Ephesians, which I've titled United in Christ. He hit on that in the video, how there's a lot of unity that you see in this book. And so um, I couldn't think of a more appropriate title than just really United. And so United in Christ Jesus. And we're going to spend, like I said, the next probably three months going through this book. So hopefully you can stick with us. And hopefully this will be something that can really unite Sojourn even further, whether you're just checking us out for the first time or whether you're a regular tender, um, that we can get unified together under the banner of Jesus Christ. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight said about the book of Ephesians that the story of Ephesians is truly the story of God, a drama in which God is the primary actor in the entire cosmos and is his stage. And so in this letter, we're going to see that God is gathering a people for himself and for his purposes. Really? 
I mean, the, the whole thing, you can say the whole Bible, the whole thing is really about God. And God is gathering these people and he's going to unify these people. And see that God is uniting all things in heaven and on earth underneath himself. And God is restoring and renewing all of creation. I think we could all agree that, man, if you look around, our world needs some restoration. We need things to be renewed. And we'll see the centrality of Jesus as one of the one of the, the main things that does this uniting. It's not something that we do in our own strength and our own power, although we're going to unpack where God has really given the church a big role in that. But it's really Jesus himself who is uniting uh, all things. So the letter that we're introducing tonight was to an audience that lived in a city very similar to ours. And so we're actually going to spend a pretty good chunk tonight as we introduce this, just looking um, at the context of where this letter was written to in the setting where it took place. And I think what you'll see is you can, you can make a lot of correlations to where you find yourself tonight in the city where, you're, where you live as well. So if you have your Bibles, uh, look with me at the book of Ephesians. If you don't, I have blue Bibles in the back there, or if you have the app on your phone, and I think we'll probably have it on the screen if my big head is not in the way. I'm just going to read the first two verses, and that's where we're, we're pretty much going to camp out. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me as we get started in the Word tonight. God, we just want to come to you and just thank you for who you are. Guys, I think as we as we dive into this letter and realize that you are uniting all things to yourself, both on in heaven and on earth, and God, that you have called us to be part of that, and you've given us a role in that. God, that you would speak to us, that your presence would be here. Grab the hearts of the people in this room. Lord, move me out of the way, but allow your word to become alive and to speak to them as we see the purpose that you've given to each and every single one of us and in us collectively. In your name I pray. Amen. So we're going to spend the next several minutes uh, going a little bit deeper into these these two verses and, and hopefully get a the significance of the setting of the time and what has taken place. So if you look back with me just at that first part of verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So imagine this letter is, is being sent to you, or may, imagine maybe a group of us. Maybe it's Sojourn Church. We get this letter, and it's, it's written to us. And Paul's just kind of establishing here just, just his authorship. You know, we're just kind of saying, this is the sender of the person who sent you this letter. Now, today we hear letter, and we think, what is, what is a letter? Are you talking about an email? Are you talking about a Facebook message? Like, I don't remember the last I got an actual letter in the mail. But, but you know, think of, think of whatever platform you need. And so he sent this letter. He's basically saying, here's who I am. And he's, he's kind of flashing his credentials here. Because, you know, you can get a letter from anyone. Let's just say you get a random letter from somebody and you're like, wait a minute, why is this, who's this person giving me advice? Like, they don't know anything about my life. So Paul's establishing who he is. And he's saying, I'm an apostle. Which an apostle is, if you're not familiar, is a chosen messenger by the Lord Jesus. And so he's kind of saying, I'm not coming with my own authority. I'm coming with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And so he's establishing that that the letter you're about to read is actually coming from the authority of God. And so in other words, like, okay, if you get this letter, this is a letter where you go, wow, okay, I need to pay attention because this isn't just, Paul wasn't just out there roaming around and said, I'm going to write this letter. Like God instructed him to write this letter and gave him specific intentions and purposes when he was writing it. And then if you're unfamiliar with, the, with Paul himself, Paul used to be a guy named Saul, and Saul hated Christians. He hated Christians so much that he persecuted Christians. But God pursued him, and eventually he gave his life to Christ, and his life was turned radically upside down. He had a, um, a, a whole shift, and Saul, the persecutor, eventually went on to become Paul, the pastor and church planner. In fact, he went on to plant a number of churches 
He also authored a big chunk of the New Testament. So if you've studied the Bible at all and you've studied the New Testament, you can see a lot of these letters are written by this guy, Paul, who's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, if you look at the rest of verse 1, he says, "...to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus." So Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians who live in this city known as Ephesus. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but if you study commentaries, New Testament scholars, there's some debate on whether or not this letter was actually originally intent for Ephesus or not. But most, author, most scholars will at least conclude that it was a circular letter and that Ephesus was one of the churches that it was intended for. And so for, for our purposes, we're going to look at the Ephesus, and it was written in 62 AD. And at the time, Ephesus is considered a world-class city. It's one of the most influential cities in the world. It's the modern-day New York City, London, Dubai, and even in many ways, for us, the city of Portland. Now, I know Portland's not a London or a, or a New York, but we are an influential city. A lot of culture comes out of the city of Portland. I was actually explaining this to a friend of mine last week who was standing at our house who lives on the East Coast. And, and this guy's a pastor. And we were talking about how in a city like Portland, culture comes out of us. It, it kind of oozes out of us. And so something that, that may change, whether it's a law or, or it could be just a trend and, and stuff that comes into the church, it'll happen here first, long before it happened on the East Coast in many cities. And so on the East Coast, you kind of have this learning curve where you kind of watch it across the country. And you're like, okay, this is happening. What are, how the church is responding? How are the pastors responding? What are they doing? What are the actions they take? When you're in Portland, you don't have that learning curve. It's just, it's here and in a moment. And it's like, okay, what do we do now? You know, this thing is legalized or this is going to be illegal to do or, or, you know, how do we respond to these issues? And so Ephesus is kind of one of those places like culture is just coming out of them. One of the wealthiest cities in the region of the Roman Empire, travelers literally from all over the world would pass through Ephesus. It's a port city full of commerce, trade, a diverse city, full of entertainment. It was a place that you wanted to live. Ephesus is the type of city that if you didn't live there, this is the place you wanted to visit. Like this is maybe on your bucket list. Like, man, I want to go visit Ephesus at some point because it's just full of entertainment and it has a promise of a lifestyle that I'm not finding here in the city where I live. Like I can't wait to visit Ephesus. It was also home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, the goddess of fertility. And they built a 68,000 square foot temple in her honor. Now, if you're not sure how big 68,000 square feet is, um, I'm guessing most of you watched the Super Bowl. So if you watch the Super Bowl, even if you're not a football fan, it's like the one game that everybody watches. And they, a couple of days they panned out, right? And they showed the Georgia Dome. That's a massive building. The Georgia Dome is 6,000 square feet smaller than this temple. So just to think about how big this temple was to, to the Artemis. It was built in honor of a pagan goddess. As a powerful and corrupt city, it was also steeped in sexual sin. So imagine with me for a minute. So you've got this city, influential, it's got culture, it's got entertainment, but it's also known for things like sexual sin, and it's just all over the place. Does this sound familiar to you at all? Does this sound like maybe a place that you've visited? Does this sound like a place that perhaps you even live? Hopefully you're starting to see a glimpse of the idea of the type of city that this letter was written to. A city is much like the one we find ourselves in today. I think a lot of times when we study the Bible, you think like, man, that was years ago, and that sounds like a small podunk town. Like, that's nothing like where I am, like modern-day Portland. And then you read a letter like the one that we're looking at tonight and starting, you go, this sounds eerily familiar. Like, did Paul write this to the church at Portland? Like, are we sure it wasn't the church at Portland rather than Ephesus? Because it sounds very, very familiar. It's a difficult urban context where people were surrounded by and struggle with the same type of 
the things that you and I do today. So if you ever think, man, I don't know if this part of the Bible is for me. This letter is written to your struggles, to what you are dealing with today. And the Apostle Paul actually lives in the city for three years. And to get a grasp on the environment in Ephesus, we're actually going to jump back into the book of Acts. So Acts 19, and then we'll jump back into Ephesians. So if you have, once again, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts chapter 19. I can, I can scoot over a little bit here so you guys can see it on the screen. And what we're going to see is that Paul is visiting Ephesus where he ends up living for three years and he starts preaching in Jewish synagogues, but some of the Jews, not all, refuse to accept his message and they become unwelcoming. So Paul leaves the synagogue and he moves into the lecture hall where he proclaims the gospel for two years. And so then Acts 19.10, he says, all the residents, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So then Paul eventually decides to leave Ephesus. And if you look down with me at verse 23, he says, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Do you see what's happening here? The Apostle Paul has spent the last couple of years proclaiming the gospel in Ephesus, in this very pagan city, to both Jews and Greeks, right? Paul didn't discriminate. He didn't say, I'm only going to share with, with people who are like me and who look like me. He says, the gospel is for all people. So I'm going to share the gospel with all people, both the Jews and Greeks. And as the gospel has started taking root in people's lives for the very first time, and Christianity starts breaking into this city, suddenly we see this character, Demetrius. He kind of comes onto the scene, and, and he's mentioned here that he's an idol maker. That's his profession. That's how he makes money. And he recognizes that the Apostle Paul and the message he is proclaiming, it's not good for business. He's, he's messing up how I'm making my income, how I'm eating, how I've got the roof over my head here. It's brought him all this wealth. And so Demetrius says, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this Paul guy. I'm tired of this message that he's bringing in. So I'm going to gather all the idol makers together to point out and call out Paul. Because not only in Ephesus, but it says all over Asia, people have turned from their idols and they've started turning to the God that Paul proclaims. And so as Paul has proclaimed that the gods they make with their hands are not gods at all. This reminds me of, of my family when we lived over in India, where we walked by Hindu temples that were made by the hands of men. And we would see these large images of, of Ganesh and, and Krishna and, and, and different Hindu gods. You know, these huge structures. I mean, things way taller than the ceiling. And I would just walk by them. And at first, it was very eye-opening to me. I was like, man, I can't believe they're doing that. And then it kind of just like became normal life. Like I would just see it every day. But what always stuck out to me and never became normal is watching people walk into these temples and bow down, you know, take their shoes off. They bow down out of reverence. They're burning incense. And they're sacrificially giving money to these, to these images who are their gods. And what we were doing, part of my role was equipping nationals, those who follow Christ, the, you know, nationals there, to do exactly what Paul was doing in Ephesus, which often even in that case would result in persecution. So we're saying, no, you need to go around and proclaim this, this truth, this message, this mission that God has given us, saying that these, these idols, these images are false. These are, these are not gods. These things are just made with hands. And so pay attention to what Paul and the message he brings is why they're opposed. The reason that Demetrius is opposed is because it's bad for business. 
That's not even the, that's the message. He's going, wait, this is bad for business. And you might think, well, this doesn't sound very relevant to me at all. Like, you're probably thinking, I didn't go out this week and buy a silver trinket or an idol. I didn't walk into some big temple and, and bow down to something. But think of it this way. Idolatry is not so much bowing down to some silver statue, but it's carrying the belief that something created has the ability to do the work of the creator in your life. Let me say that again. Idolatry is not so much bowing down to some silver statue, but carrying the belief that something created has the ability to do the work of the creator in your life. So we don't bow down to silver statues like they do in Ephesus and other parts of the world. But many of us find ourselves carrying around this deep held belief that something created can do the work of the creator in our lives. Another you may have heard is described it this way, exchanging a good thing in your life and making it a God thing. Right? How often have we done that? How often have you done that? For many people, maybe some of you, what brought you to a city like Portland, and if it's, if it's none of you in the room, what definitely brings a lot of people to our city and why it continues to grow and keeps people in Portland is the promise of a lifestyle. People come, you know, they're at a crossroads. You know, this is a common theme as I meet more people in the city. They're at a crossroads. This is why our city is so full of millennials as well, which I'm one of those. They're at this crossroads. They want to escape something, right? And it's like, okay, I want to escape this life that I'm living now, wherever it is else in the country where I live. And Portland seems like a great place to escape. Portland seems to promise this life that I, I long for. I just can't find it where I'm at currently. That's why our city is full of transplants. Most people move to either for work or to escape some kind of former reality that they were living. And what people are often seeking is a brand new life, right? The, the opportunity to start again. I can, I can recreate myself. Does, does Jesus speak to this at all? I think Jesus calls this being born again. And so what people, I believe, are actually seeking out is, is, is being born again. But they don't know that. They don't know how to describe it that way. And so all they know is like, I'm going to go and reinvent myself there. You know? And really, you are offered that opportunity when you move, you know, whether it's from the Midwest or from the East Coast or somewhere, you can move to this place. No one knows who you are. And you can really recreate yourself. And the city of Portland appears to offer that opportunity. For others, people moved here to find a spouse. So Portland has two and a half million people. Many of them are young and single. Suddenly, this city feels like it's full of prospects. So you find a bunch of single people running around like, hey, this, this seems like a great space. Right? There's all these people, and, and I'm not, I don't have a spouse. I don't have a partner. Let's, let's see if I can find one here. And these desires are good, but I would say the level of wanting to be known and desired is really what, something they can only seek and find in God, not, not in another, another human being. So what often what brings people to the city of Portland is a promise of that one thing that we long for and desire. That, well, that one thing is like, there's just this lure and this luster of, man, I, can, I know I can find it there. But what, what often is happening is people are exchanging something that is exchanging the relationship they have with the creator for something that's created. Go, man, I, can, I know I can find it there. And what often happens is they get here and they don't actually find that thing. Look with me at verses 28 and 29 in Acts 19. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocrus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. And so you see, they don't even look at the truth claims here, but they get angry. They get angry at Paul and these guys, they drag them out to the theaters and they get violent at the risk of losing their business of hydrology. Which on that level, I think we can understand. Like, let's just say that you've got a business and all of a sudden someone comes in and they're, they're really threatening your livelihood here. Think about the, the protests that happen in our city. We're kind of known for a city that protests, but, but imagine the protests that would break out if we were going, okay, we're going to shut down, let's just say it's the cannabis industry. And I'm not making a judgment call on that tonight, but let's just say it's the cannabis industry. Can you imagine the outrage that would happen in our city if all of a sudden it was like, we're fighting to get um, you know, marijuana to no longer be legal in our city, and we're going to shut down the whole cannabis industry. I mean, there would be riots and protests in the street, and it would be multifaceted. Part of that would be because there's a lot of money making in 
that now? Have you not seen how many shops are in our city? And so you can kind of imagine like, man, they are angry. They'd be dragging us into the street and saying, we're not going to stand for this because this is how we are making money. Maybe you're in here and, and, and you know people in our city, they're on the cusp of becoming a Christ follower, right? Think about the individuals you know. And my assumption is if you are a Christ follower, you know people who don't know Jesus and that you're walking with them, that hopefully they will, they will come to know Jesus. So imagine those people. What would happen if this week they gave their life to Christ in a city like ours? And they went out and, they, and then it was like, you know what? I'm going to, what do I do now? Like, well, tell your coworkers, tell your neighbors, tell your friends what happened to your life. Imagine the kind of pushback that they would be met with, right? Is that going to be celebrated in our city? No, it's not going to be celebrated. They're going to be met with all kinds of pushback. Think about just the reactions that you would see as they would share their story of life change. Because when your life is radically changed, you start to live differently as God changes you from the inside out. Suddenly you find yourself with different desires. You find yourself with different interests. So why is it that in, in a city like ours, and maybe this is part of your own story, think about how you used to live, and then, and then once you came to recognize who Jesus is, and you, you accepted and followed Jesus, and you're, you're learning this way of, of being what it means to be a follower of Christ. All of a sudden, things like, let's just say drinking, for example. Maybe you used to be the guy who would just throw back 12 beers on a weekend, and now, and now maybe you get ridiculed because you only drink two. And they're like, wait a minute, what, what, what happened to you? You were like the person, like you were the, you know, the, party, the party guy. Like We could always rely on you, and like you would do the stupid things. And now you're only doing this. And it's not a law thing, but you're like, you know, I just don't have the desire anymore. You know, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. Or why is it maybe that you're no longer invited to certain parties on the weekends with some of your friends? Right. Have you ever found that? I found that in my own life. Maybe I'm just not that cool, so I don't get invited to them. But things I used to get invited to, then now I'm no longer getting invited. I always find it interesting in our city. We were actually at a neighbor's house last, uh, last night, so thankfully they still invite us back. Uh, but they invited us to a party a couple months ago. It's always very interesting. People are like, so what do you do? In our city, sometimes I go incognito and I'll answer that. I'm a father, I'm a husband and, you know, I do all these other things. And they're like, what, what do you do for money? You know, so then that's its own conversation. But at the, at the heart of it, like, you know, when I say I'm a pastor or I say I'm starting a church, like usually you can hear a pin drop and the walls go up. And that's why I don't normally come out the gate with it. Um, but these, these people I'd asked a while back and we have found ourselves where it's like, man, I'm, you know, as soon as they find out, like we know, like they're not going to invite us back to the parties anymore. Like now we're no longer the fun and cool family on the street. They're like, no way. Don't invite those people. There's a big X on our house because they follow Jesus and we, we just don't want to have them around. Thankfully, the neighbors last night, they've continued to invite us back. And so um, that doesn't always happen, but a lot of times that happens. And so we kind of know it's like a loaded bomb waiting to go off whenever I get asked that question. But maybe you've experienced that too. When someone says, why do you, why do you live the way that you live? Why are you making these decisions? Or why do you care so much? Like why, why do you express love in the way that you do? Why, why are you staying late at work? Or, or why are you willing to help out with these things? And it gives you those opportunities to walk people towards Jesus. I think oftentimes the reason people are uncomfortable in these situations, and maybe the reason that, that, that the pastor doesn't get invited back to these parties and, and different events, is that nobody wants to be exposed to the fact that their idols in their lives, whether that's their job, it could be money, drinking, drugs, hobbies, whatever it is, can be found powerless. You know, oftentimes they're probably thinking that, man, this guy's going to come in, come in judging, which I like to say it's actually quite the opposite. If you're doing life in this city, then the environment you live in can be very challenging. But I'm not suggesting that we leave the city. 
That's what my parents did. So I grew up near Charlotte, North Carolina. And so my parents vowed, the this, this city is dangerous. And maybe in the mid 80s, Charlotte was dangerous, but the city is dangerous. Like you're going to go to the city, and you're going to get shot or you're going to be exposed to drugs. You're going to be exposed to all these things. And so my parents' response was to, to go to a safe suburb and to keep us kind of not exposed to that kind of thing. That is not what I'm suggesting here at all. In fact, I live in this neighborhood and I, I plan to stay in this city. If anything, I'm saying I want more followers of Jesus to come into the city. But what this means is that you and I should do our life with intentionality. That we're not just living for our own purposes. We're not just living for our own benefit. We're not just living for that paycheck. But that we are living a life free of idols. And we can do that in a city like ours because Christ has freed us from those things. I've said this many, many times. You'll continue to hear me say this. Discipleship and evangelism to me is the two sides of the same coin. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you have an opportunity to walk people to Jesus or further in Jesus. Every single relationship that you have. Those who don't know Christ at all, at least until you know that they know Christ. Like I'm walking them towards Jesus. I'm pointing them to Jesus. And those who do, you can say, I'm going to press them further in Jesus and disciple one another. And think about when the gospel breaks into a city like ours, it creates a brand new counterculture life in the city. It brings out a new narrative, one that is often foreign to the world around us. I think about our city, which, which is a counterculture city. Like if you Googled or looked up counterculture cities, Portland's probably towards the top, if not at the top in the U.S. But when you think about biblical Christianity, which I know it's a loaded term. I don't have time to explain that tonight unless you want to go out for dinner with my family afterwards. But when you really see that living, when you see the implications of the good news of the gospel being lived out in our city, to me, that's when you really see counterculture. That's when you should see something that the world around us and the city around us is like, that is different. And I don't know what it is. You know, I don't know what they're smoking. I don't know what they're selling, but I got to have some of it as you see it actually lived out and seeing the one another. those things that we value here at Sojourn. And think with me about your own identity and how it's wrapped up where we live and how we got here. We're a pretty prideful city, if we're, if we're honest. And we all, whether you're from here originally or not, we kind of all drink that Kool-Aid and start to kind of get like, yeah, we're known for this. And then especially if it's like food and coffee, if you visit any other city in the country, you're just really disappointed. Like vacation's not fun anymore. You know, Jim Gaffigan talks about vacation. It's just going to a different place you've never been and just eating food and restaurants you've never been to. So you leave our city and you're like, man, this food's not any good. Like it says best burger and whatever name your city, but it's not nearly as good as the food I can get in Portland. So Portland just kind of messes you up. But think about your identity, how you got here, and how you wrap it up in that. For some of you, maybe it's your, your job, right? And you kind of think like, that's who I am. You know, and maybe you describe yourself as a barista or as a teacher or um, as a pastor. You know, you, you describe yourself through these things. Or maybe it's your relationship. Maybe it's the person you're dating or your spouse. Maybe that's where your identity is, right? And, and truthfully, that's where I should put a lot of my identity. Have you guys seen my wife? I mean, it was Valentine's Day this week, so I can kind of brag on my wife. Like, you, you meet me and you're like, man, normal looking dude. Then you meet my wife, you're like, whoa, what in the world happened? I got married way up. How did he convince her to marry him? There's a language barrier, so it benefits you. So if you're single and you're looking, language barrier, cross-cultural relationships do work. Maybe it's your hobbies. You know, if you're if you're into CrossFit, I'm looking at you guys. Like maybe it's your hobby, right? And it's like, well, we we eat this way and we do this many burpees and do this, and this is like, man, they get so wrapped up in that and they're always wearing workout clothes. Like, we get it. Like you like to work out and you like to look at your physique in the mirror. Their identity get wrapped up in that. Why is it so bad to allow our identity to be wrapped up into these things? What happens to you after you lose that job? What happens to you when that relationship ends? Or what happens when your spouse dies? What happens when you get injured or you relapse and you start eating unhealthy again? What do these things do when we find our identity in them and then eventually let us down and fall apart? During my time overseas, I allowed my identity to get wrapped up into what I was doing. 
the work that I was doing, which I would argue was really good work, really needed work. But I would eat, sleep, breathe, strategize, everything to do with broadly church planting, but in an international context where there's lots and lots of unreached people groups and unengaged unreached people groups, which, which I would say just kind of like side trail real quick, like, please go overseas. There's so many needs over there. We're hoping that we'll, we'll be able to engage further with our partners in South Asia and take some of these trips. But I got so wrapped up in that. And after a couple years of doing that life, suddenly we, it felt like the rug got pulled out from under us for a variety of reasons. We moved back to the United States. And I found myself losing, like I didn't, I didn't have an identity anymore. I didn't have a role anymore. And then when it came to like our local church, we went back and I was like, how, how can I be involved? What can I do? And they were like, can you hand out bulletins at the door? And I was like, what? What? You want me to hand out a piece of paper? At the, I don't, I don't get it. This is so different. You know, not that that's not a needed role, but it was just the process I had to go through. I suddenly found myself with a wife, two kids and no job. So I was desperate. I took the first job offer that came my way as a barista at a stump town coffee counter. So here I am, 28 years old. I've got two master's degrees. I've spent the couple, previous couple years on the front lines in uh, really small villages all throughout Northeast India. And I found myself working a job that I was pretty sure I could have gotten when I was in high school. And so I had found myself placing my identity in something other than the creator himself. I found myself placing my identity in kind of this job description and this role. And that's when God spoke to me and said, am I enough? I thought, what do you, what do you mean, God? He said, am I enough regardless if you work at this coffee counter the rest of your life, regardless of your degrees and all the things you can put next to your name, regardless what your resume says you have and haven't done, am I enough for you? Thankfully, I, I, I said, yes, God, you are enough if I end up working here. And then God opened some other doors and, and, and kind of got to, at least for now, move past that season of my life. At times, the identity we are given and the things we wrap it up in can become difficult to lose, even if we want to. Some of those things we want to continue to keep, like, this is what I'm known for. Maybe the people up here leading worship, like, I'm known as a worship person. I'm known, you know, I got my guitar and I can do these things. But other times it's things we want to leave. Like, think about what you were known for in high school. You probably don't, at least a lot of you, probably don't want to be known for those things anymore. Maybe you were the person who slept around, right? And so they're like, oh, that's the sleazy one. Like, <laughs> avoid that person, right? And you're like, well, I think I've moved past that. But then you go to high school reunion and it's still like, you're the one. Yeah, we're, we're going to stay away. There might be STD or something over there. Or maybe you're the jock or maybe the person that beat everybody up, right? Like, oh, watch out. That's the guy that'll punch your lights out. Like, stay away from him. Like, well, like, I've matured. I'm in my mid-30s now. So, so and they're like, no, that's, that's still what you're known for. Think about actors. They deal with this all of the time, right? Who, who knows who Dwight Schrute is? I say Dwight Schrute, right? I think everyone knows who that is. So if Dwight walked in the room tonight, we'd all be like, Dwight. Dwight, Dwight from The Office, right? That's not who that actually is. He's got an actual name, which I, I don't even remember right now, but I'm thinking of Dwight Schrute. And that's what we remember him as. So there's actors who deal with that kind of thing all the time, right? And they're always going to kind of carry around that character type or that role. And it's like, that was just a job that I had. You know, in, in high school and college, I flipped burgers. So like, if I run into somebody that I knew from 20 years ago, and they were like, hey, you're the guy that works at the burger joint. Like, no, that, that was like a long time ago. I left that in the past, but they're still kind of characterizing me as that. So there may be these things that you still want to, you actually want to get past your identity, but somehow it still kind of comes on you. But Paul is addressing this letter to the saints, to people living in one of the most pagan cities at the time, a city much like the one that we find ourselves living in today. He's, he's addressing this letter to people that had screwed up, people have messed up sexually, people have wrecked their lives, but have found redemption in Jesus. And surely the churches in Ephesians were like some of our churches that we find today. Churches are full of gossips, they're full of jerks, they're full of perverts, they're full of self-righteous people. 
Yet Paul is referring to them here as saints in Christ Jesus. Paul's way of saying true Christians. So we say, what is a true Christian? They're a saint. Right? When you hear saint, I'm not speaking and referring to it in the Catholic way. You know, some of you maybe have a Catholic background. Um, to my knowledge, at least I can say sojourn church is never going to make this big image or idol out of you or this, this graven statue and say, like, you are a saint. We're not going to pray to you and do all those types of things. But Paul's saying here that you are a saint. If you're in Christ, you are looked at as a saint. You're looked at as a holy one. And so I'm telling you tonight that regardless where you found your identity, you have not screwed up too much for Jesus. And that if you're truly in Christ, then you are looked at as a saint in God's eyes. So even, even once we come to Jesus, I think sometimes we think, man, like I heard the gospel, the good news, and I embraced it, I understood it, and now I've moved past. Like, what's the next thing? You know, and I love how Tim Keller phrases it. He says, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A through Zs of Christianity, right? So we continually need the gospel in our lives, regardless how long you've been following Jesus. And we've all found ourselves probably in those, those dark seasons, like, man, I feel like I don't even know what I believe anymore. Or maybe I've, I've found myself in the sin again. Like, no, you are a saint because of what Christ has done. Think of it this way. What you do doesn't determine who you are. Rather, who you are in Christ determines what you do. So ultimately, it should be an identity that's overflowing, not because of something that you're able to do and, and something that you're able to create up. It's not like pull up your bootstraps and here you are, you're this, you're this awesome Christian. It's how God is working in and through you. As Christians, we live from our identity, not for our identity. We are defined by who we are in Christ, not what we do or fail to do for Christ. Christ defines who we are by who He is and what He's done for us, in us, and through us. So really, it's not about us at all. It's all about Jesus. The example of Ephesus is that Christians can flourish in a difficult and pagan culture, and that Christians can maintain their identity in Christ in such cultures for generations by the grace of God. So if you think, man, I found myself in this city, and let's just be real, it can be really hard to be a Christ follower in our city, because it doesn't get you any credibility. right? If you go out and just think of, of an area of sin that you maybe you're, you struggle with, or maybe it's just something, like, man, I really wanted to try that, but, but I don't know, because that I'm pretty sure it's sin to do it. Imagine you just go out and do that tonight. Like, it will be celebrated. Those around you will celebrate with you that you are now doing that thing. So it brings you no credibility to find your identity in Jesus. But I think the church at Ephesus is going to show us over the coming weeks that it is possible to find your ultimate identity in Christ. Maybe you're guilty of falling into what I like to call the AA trap. Now, I don't mean AA doesn't do a lot of good work, because they do, and I believe in, in the work that they do. But the little bit I know about AA in the beginning days, I think most of us know, like, I'd say, like, hello, my name is Matt, and I'm an alcoholic. Now, I probably should remove this from the recording because I'm not an alcoholic. So if you're a supporter, please don't drop your support. But the reason I bring that up is, are you being defined by what you have done? Are you being defined by a sin or characteristic in your life? Are you being defined by Christ and Christ alone? Right? We can all find these things. Be like, man, you know, I'm a liar or, or I'm a gossip or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy that lusts or I'm this. You know, all these things that we can pour around. And we forget about the cross a lot of times. We forget about what Jesus has actually done for us and that he's declared us righteous if you are in Christ. So your sin may explain some of your activity, but it's not your identity if you are in Christ. And at the heart of our faith, it's an identity swap. Is it not? At the heart of our faith is the gospel. The gospel is the ultimate identity swap. Most of our culture, even if you don't have a church background, because we do live in the United States, 
recognizes that, that there's this character named Jesus and that he was crucified. Right now, kind of from there, was he God? Was he not? Was he a good teacher? That's where we kind of, people get hung up when we debate. But most people recognize that he was crucified. And as followers of Christ, we believe that at that moment, that's when the ultimate identity swap took place. Jesus took my identity and your identity on himself. All those sins, all those things we allow to characterize our life, Jesus took those on himself at the cross. We've never done this here, and I don't know if we ever will, but if, you, if you've been in church at all, you've probably seen what they you know, we could put a cross over here and we'd all get a sticky note and kind of put, put our, our sin or maybe the things that characterize us. But that is a good picture because that ultimate identity swap happened at the cross of Christ. And Jesus gifted me and you his identity so that we can be called saints. Not because of something we have done, but because of what Jesus did. The heart of the Christian faith is that by God's grace, what he has done for you gives, gives us a new identity. We no longer need to work for, to form a new identity because it's already been done for us. The work is over. Like, I think of it as just, we can just rest in the arms of Jesus because of what he's already done for us. It's not something that we have to go out. So don't, please don't hear my message saying tonight, like, man, we're going to go out and we're going to work hard this week. And when we mess up, we're just going to get down and depressed. Like, no, when you, when you, when you trip and you fall, all right, God, I know how you still look at me. I know that you're still, I'm still looked at as a saint because of what you have done. So continue to focus and put your gaze on Jesus. And if you want to be in Christ, all you have to do is receive it. There's nothing else that can be done. We believe and follow what Christ has done for us, which I love. Think about those, once again, think about those people in your life, that this is the message that you get to proclaim to them. All those people are moving to our city because they're trying to recreate themselves. We have the answer. And that's what I'm trying to say tonight. We have the answer already. We've already been given the playbook in the Bible. And as you meet these people where they're at and live your life with intentionality, you get to walk them to Christ. Because the reality is, and I'm going to say this over and over again, and you can just look around at all the empty chairs and all the space we have for more chairs, is most people in our city aren't going to come into a gathering like this. And we recognize that here at Sojourn, and we know that. But this is really a place where hopefully we can get equipped, and we can be encouraged, and we can worship the Lord and say, now let's go out to our city where we're going to spend the majority of our week and still get to be the church, and we get to walk people towards Jesus Christ. Look with me at the last part of verse 1, and we'll wrap up. It says, And are faithful in Christ Jesus. And so we are faithful to the seeds that God has planted in our hearts. This changes who I am and should start allow us to start living a life of faithfulness. And so my question for you is, are you living with a new identity that you have been given in Jesus? Or are you still kind of holding on to your, to your past identity and wrestling through that? So it's easy in our city to live with sin. Once again, I've already said it's easy. It's, it, it'll be celebrated. But by living that countercultural life, that's when you're going to be criticized. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. You're going to be the one in your friends, your circle of friends, that's going to be weird. <laughs> Hate to break it to you. <laughs> I mean, think about the message that we believe. <laughs> we believe that a guy was born of a virgin and he lived a perfect life. He died on a cross and then he rose again. Like, is that not weird? Is that not weird enough? And so you're going to be the weird one. So you might as well just kind of like get over the weirdness and just embrace it and get that opportunity to walk people towards it. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have the worship people come back up. We're going to sing a couple of songs of celebration and praise. And this is something we, we haven't done real recently, but if any of you need prayer for anything, you need someone to talk to, I'm just going to stand back there around those three chairs there, just if, if somebody needs that, because I want us to be known for people of prayer. I want us to be known that we can go to each other with our burdens. And of course, you can do that after the gathering finishes as well, but I will be back there in the event anyone um, needs to talk. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to our sermons podcast. We are a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. 
If you'd like to learn more about what God is doing in our lives, reach out to us by emailing info at sojournpdx.org or check out our website. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you.